Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the afterlife and the unconscious. My guest is Dr. Stephanie Stevens. She is the author of a groundbreaking book called C.G. Jung and the Dead, Visions, Active Imagination, and the Unconscious Terrain. Between 2004 and 2013, she served on the executive committee of the International Association of Jungian Studies, and she is the recipient of the 2018 Francis P. Bolton Fellowship from the Parapsychology Foundation. She teaches psychology through the International Baccalaureate Program. Stephanie is based in Canberra, Australia, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Stephanie. I'm very excited to have you with me on New Thinking Aloud, all the way from Australia. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. I think the work that you are doing is really groundbreaking. So many people think of Jungian psychology when it comes to the paranormal as being, oh, symbolic at, at best. I've even once had a conversation with a very famous Jungian, James Hillman, who, who tried to deny that there was anything of parapsychological interest in Jungian psychology. But you're very forthright in suggesting that when Carl Jung speaks of the dead, he, he meant it uh, really quite literally. Yes, and and um, I think we can't deny that element, as you point out, um, in, in, particularly due to the Red Book material. I think we were all kind of um, making suppositions, making hypotheses after we were reading Memories, Dreams, Reflections. I know that was a really significant text for me. Um, after I read MDR, I felt, wow, something is really going on with this man who is grappling deeply with the experiences, visionary experiences that he had. And I think there are cues and clues within that text that help that point to the fact that he himself grappled very significantly with those figures of the unconscious that kind of emerged as um, uh, personal content from his personal unconscious versus the this this um, theme of the dead that kept arising and he calls it you know he's not seeing clowns or camels or 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 animals he's seeing figures that he designates as the dead so yes I think there are and and yes I I feel too that um, my research is a bit on the more radical side of even the Jungian circle I know people consider Jungians to be, you know, very deep and abstract. Um, and probably within my community of Jungians, I'm probably a fringe dweller. Well, you came to depth psychology with a background in classics, and the ancient writers, the Greek and Latin writers, took the afterlife uh, quite seriously, I uh, believe, and, and quite literally as well. They had special temples where they would go to commune with the dead. 
Exactly, exactly. And so we have in the Western canon a tradition of a relationship with the afterlife. Um, and it's it, and as the classicist David Ogden mentioned, you know, the ancients really had a very vibrant connection to their ancestors. The question isn't uh, isn't really why did they? The question is why don't we have that same rigorous connection with our dead? And so um, yes, I start. Uh, as a classicist, I taught Latin and Latin literature for many, many years, and I was really captured by these stories. Um, in particular, you have Book 11, the encounter of Odysseus with his deceased mother. Um, this is more of a raising of the dead and a liminal experience where he um, uh, gets to commune with his mother based on um, this connection, and there's kind of a ritual involved. Virgil takes that kind of in his imagination and expands it to a whole book. And so book six of the Aeneid really captured my attention, in particular, a moment right before book six, where Aeneas's own father has died and appears to him and says, you need to come to the underworld because I have something to show you. And I can't tell you how long I sat with that. I sat with that for a very, very long time, years, actually. Why is it that that his father appeared? What is so important that he directs him to come visit? And of course, I sat with that for a long time. And then when I started my doctoral work, um, my supervisor said, you really want to look at Jung. And then I was just amazed that Jung himself, one of the most profound dreams that he had was six weeks after his own father died and his father returned. Um, and so this, this parallel theme really stuck with me and I worked on it for quite a while. I know in your research, you came to the conclusion that, that one of the reasons Aeneas, I believe, is the hero of the Aeneid, visits the afterlife, and you began to wonder if his father is already appearing to him, why does he have to visit? And and you, you came to the conclusion that in the afterlife, he had access not only to the past but and the present, but also the future. Now, I have interviewed any number of mediums and other shamans, people who experience connections with the afterlife, actually, at least in, in their worldview. And, and one of the hallmarks of that is that it does seem as if the uh, departed in the afterlife have a whole different sense of time. And, and actually, there are many anecdotes, uh, some of which are uh, accompanied by Evidence of, of different sorts that suggests that in the afterlife, they are able to uh, see time very differently than we do and can see into the future. Mm. Yes. And so we have that um, episode that seems to point to this significance of Aeneas being able to have access to this uh, future vision of his. It's not a, his personal life. He's carrying a destiny that's very important for a, tr a tribe of people. So in a sense, he becomes the visionary for the future of, of, of his people. And what's so incredibly important is that Aeneas seems to direct him because he is not able to 
access that vision with the tools that he currently has and the emotional reserves that he's just spent in the first six books. And so there is this element of what journeying to the underworld means in order to access those visions. And of course, one of the first couple of um, encounters he has there are people from his past and his present. So there's this um, calibration almost of energy that allows him to prepare, even in this unconscious journey, prepare to see the future and how important it is that he grasps the significance of that. And of course, okay, so that's the paradigm, if you will. But but in terms for Jung, the more he started journeying into this confrontation with the unconscious, which is the title of one of his chapters in MDR, the more he realized how timeless and spaceless those dimensions are. Okay, the time does seem to be very fleeting um, and, and that the significance of being in that space, wherever that space is in the personal unconscious and the collective really does mean a detachment of sorts from our notions of time. Yes. And he says that in a few places in MDR. Well, I'm very interested in delving deeper into Jungian psychology with you. But before we leave the classics, I think it's worth noting that Raymond Moody, the pioneer of near-death experience, the author of Life After Life, I think is, is the great bestseller that he wrote, uh, opening up the whole field of near-death research, developed a research protocol. We've talked about it on New Thinking Aloud, and I'm going to link to it in the upper right-hand corner of the screen, a, a protocol called the Psychomantium, which he developed from the Odyssey, from Homer. Uh, Odysseus visits the uh, temple the underground temple and um, Raymond Moody discovered these temples did exist. And based on that, a, a whole research protocol uh, was developed. You're probably familiar with that. Right. A, a little less so with that specifically and those Greek temples more so with the Roman setup. Um, although Delphi, uh, we understand, um, had significant tunnels. We can locate where exactly the priestesses sat when they delivered their oracle. So, so we know a bit about that. We also know the caves where the Sibyl, um, delivered her, uh, utterances that had to do with prophecy. And so, yes, we have these spaces, um, in in the ancient world, these relics um, in geography that help us point to uh, this significant, um, and I wouldn't call it a habit, it was a ritual. Whenever an important decision was to be made or people felt lost, they would go make sacrifices and then be in what uh, um, Diane Scafti calls an oracular space. Okay, and this oracular space was very similar to a timeless space that you were actually um, leaving everyday pedestrian life and you were assuming uh, a space of a timelessness in which ritual assisted you to gain insight in those spaces. Um, we also have some very good uh, research um about uh, the Eleusian mysteries, what they were. Of course, they were mysteries, so we don't have the exact um, protocol involved, but we know that what uh, assisted was a type of meditation or a type of 
you know, uh, non-ordinary consciousness that allowed people to see the goddess. And so we know where this occurred, these ancient mysteries and, and the, the effect, although we don't know the exact protocol involved. So I think you're, I think you're right. And Moody is correct that if we look at our, some of our um, archaeology, there is evidence of uh, very dedicated practices to this type of oracular space. It seems as if Carl Jung himself, in particular in the Red Book, uh, as he developed the process of active imagination, was doing something quite similar to entering into an oracular space. Yes, yes. And I think, I think what I want to remind everyone is that he kind of fell into this. Okay. Um, he is well known for, on a Saturday night, going to visit his relatives and being involved in seances. This really captured his imagination, but it also was something that was um, something they did on a Saturday night because they didn't have Netflix and they lived in the Swiss countryside and there was this element of folklore and, and um, engagement with this type of activity. But with Jung, he did not set out to discover the dead precisely. Um, he ended up at a time of his life, similar to Aeneas, where his emotional and psychological reserves were spent. He was kind of running on empty, if you will. And he was in such psychological pain that he knew something needed to shift. And he started experimenting with this process. And he calls it letting himself drop, where his attention kind of pulled back. And so what, what I'd like to, to, to raise is that he fell into discovering active imagination. He didn't say, I'm going to sit down and I want to, I, I know that there's a process that I can use. He literally closed his eyes and thought, well, you know, out here isn't working anymore. If I close my eyes, let's see what happens. It can't get any worse, right? And so he discovers this process of active imagination while he's practicing it. And the more he engages in the process, the more comfortable he begins to feel with his interior space, with his personal unconscious. I'm under the impression that uh especially since the Red Book was kept under wraps for a half a century by Jung's fam family, that uh, the experiences he had uh, in active imagination took him, uh, you might say, to hell and back. Things that he himself found absolutely horrifying and disgusting, but, but he kept it, kept it up. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's a really good point, Jeff, that you bring up about the hiding of the Red Book. You know, the family hid it under wraps. And there was an element of uh, fear and shame and some embarrassment about how would uh, the community of professional psychiatrists, um, the social community that Jung belonged to, how would the greater community react to such um, very explicit images and, and long uh, dialogues with um, events that occurred in his psyche? And so um, I think this is a significant point and that Sham Dasani, the editor of the Red book, approached the family and worked with them for quite a while and said, you know, we live in a different time now. We, um, in a sense, are a little bit more mature collectively. I think we're ready to see 
basically the prima materia of the whole uh, Jungian psychological framework, right? The, you know, how Jung discovered this interaction between the personal and conscious and consciousness, right? And so um, I, I do think um, there has, let me also say, as with any container where something is born, all right, um, it, it does kind of conform to, to the dimensions of that container. And so with the arrival of the Red Book, there was this um, really interesting moment where we had uh, Jungian analysts, Freudian analysts, who didn't know what to do with this, right? It was, and and one analyst said, um, uh, "It's like watching a train wreck. You know, <laughs> you can't take your eyes off, but you can't look at it and process it." So it 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 kind of fell on the community, and and people, you could feel people pivoting around it. Should we engage? Should we not engage? And and the reception was uh, really everything from here is, you know, the absolute moments when Jung discovered what would later become his psychological model to run away from this book. It's very dangerous. We should not be looking at this, but we should be looking at his professional writings. So within our own community, this reaction expands you know, spanned the whole gamut. Um, and so I think when we engage in the Red Book, I know that my supervisor said, you know, take care as you're going through this work. It is it is difficult work um, walking through someone's personal journey like this. And, and we want to recall that it's a journey. And it, as any journey that's embarked on Odysseus, Aeneas's or Jung's, um, there are travails and there are struggles and obstacles. And as readers and engagers in the content, we experience those things. So my, my supervisor had many caveats for me while he held my hand and we journeyed together. <laughs> I'm under the impression, uh, actually, based on Freud's uh, work, Civilization and Its Discontents, that the unconscious is going to include everything that a civilized person finds unacceptable. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, it, and of course, do you want all the dirty laundry um, on the line for everyone to have a look at. And that was what the Jung family was incredibly concerned about, and that's why they locked it away. Um, and I think as Freud and Jung started to understand a little bit more about their lived experience of the unconscious, they came to understand that it is, um, you know, I guess the interiority of our lives um, and that which all that which is not made manifest. You know, we have how many ideas in a day that we don't act on. OK, and those can be very positive and these, they, they can also be very um, dark. And so it be, it, their concept of what this looked like was a repository, if you will, of all of that interiority of civilizations. Right. And there's a very graphic um, encounter that Jung has with just that idea uh, with his soul, where his soul goes swimming in the depths and brings up all sorts of stuff as you would fishing, <laughs> you know, in any deep ocean. Right. As I recall, he enters into a water and it's filled with bodies and snakes and blood and horrible things. 
Yes, yes. I mean, he de- and, and there are versions of that in a couple of the episodes, right? Um, in, in the one of death is what I, I, you, you seem to be describing. And, and, you know, after he encounters all the grisly nature of it, there seems to also be this resurrection quality, this recycling of civilizations and of bodies and of moments to a rebirth of some sort. Um, and, and, and this could be the encounter that Jung has that reformulates his idea of libido that stands so different to Freud's. I'm under the impression that, in a sense, uh, there's something very tantric about Jung's exploration of the unconscious in, in that you can take all the things that are taboo, that are forbidden by society, and discover within them a spiritual element. And uh, that seems to be the essence of Jung's process. Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison, Jeff. I, I like that, um, this idea of tantra. Um and, and a part of that, I think, what what you're addressing is this engagement, right? Um, that sometimes this this material can be problematic if it is not witnessed in some way. And sometimes the witnessing or the acknowledgement is the ability to bring it from the unconscious to consciousness. As soon as we do that, that process of acknowledging, well, then we start to work with it and integrate it. And so then we have a process which Jung would eventually call individuation, you know, this, this grappling, this engagement. So I think, yes, I think there is, um, and I, 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 the word that keeps spinning in my mind is recycling. Okay. This, this, uh, ability to, to acknowledge and cleanse by acknowledging, we take the charge out of those taboos in a sense, or we, we contextualize those taboos to a time and a place. And then perhaps with the observation and the questioning of why we recalibrate and that recalibration is, is an ability to um, integrate individuation. Integrate individuation. That's really the centerpiece of Jungian psychology. And uh, I think it means that uh, parts of ourselves that we might think of as disgusting, uh, if we're willing to own them, they can become great strengths. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this is, you know, this was Jung's commitment that he discovered as he was tripping over himself in active imagination to discover everything that was just below the surface. And, and his commitment to, he, he didn't know what it was. He didn't know what he was experiencing, but what he said was, I knew I had to keep going. And so that is that commitment, as you're saying, to engage with the stuff, your stuff, right? And to engage with the things that that either consciously or unconsciously we've put aside that are unpleasant. But by by pulling it up, by looking at it, and, and we're not talking necessarily about hours and hours of analysis, right? We're talking about, oh, that's interesting. Okay, I see that that's there. Let me just hold that there for a minute, a day, a couple of weeks. Let's see what happens if the tension shifts in my conscious perspective. So that is the work that he did. Absolutely. Definitely. Now, the interesting part of our interview is going to come right now because Jung experienced the dead in his 
active imagination, in his visions, in his dreams. And he was able to distinguish between the actual dead, disembodied souls, as opposed to archetypes and other elements of his own personal unconscious. When he engaged in this journey and he knew he had to keep going, um, he was not looking for the dead. And this is a point that I really want to emphasize. This was not similar to his moments in, on a Saturday evening in seance. This was him dealing with his personal unconscious and eventually the collective unconscious. And he kept discovering and bumping in to elements that he designated as the dead. And there are a few clues along the way in Memories Dreams that let you know that he thought very seriously about what differentiated um, the dead from other figures of the unconscious. He called them figures of the unconscious. All these characters that he met in the Red Book and, and discoursed with, these were elements of reflection elements to to his unconscious that he felt through dialogue that he could integrate in some way back into his personality. But the dead were a different kind of group. And, and these were um, characters and um, beings that he felt he could discern differently to figures of the unconscious. Now, he is not explicit about this. Either is Marie-Louise von Franz, who, who also, you know, worked with him for many, many years. And they agreed that there is a difference when you encounter the dead in the psyche to other figures of the unconscious. And so with my grappling of the research, I liken it to that figures of the unconscious can be experienced as um a magnetic force, right? Eventually your dealings are going to pull back the energy back into the personality for a little bit of more balance on that issue, right? With the dead, the dead seem to appear more in a mirroring fashion, right? Because the dead don't need to be integrated into our personality, right? They don't appear for that reason, at least in the Red Book, they don't seem to. Well, in my own personal experience and in the experience of people I talk to, when the dead appear in dreams, there's a definite sense that they are really the spirits of the dead. They don't feel like the characters that that otherwise appear in dreams. And it's sort of a, an intangible quality. Uh, it's hard to put your finger on, on it to define it precisely, but it it definitely feels different. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, we, we call that bereavement dreaming. Um, and in bereavement dreams, um, uh, Kelly Buckley has done a lot of research on this. And there appears to be a sense that that you aren't dreaming about the person, but that that person was really there. And that the the feeling tone of the dream is very difficult to differentiate from waking life, waking consciousness. So so with other dreams that are a little more pedestrian in fashion, sometimes it's as if we're observing a film or a movie. But with these bereavement dreams, there is a interaction that's much more profound. And so you're 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 totally right. This seems to be a um, a consensus. And in fact, 
when Jung talks about the dream of his father, about six weeks after his father's death, he says, I'm going to read this to you directly. He says, what does it mean that my father returns in dreams and that he seems so real? Okay. And so my point was that, you know, if he was dreaming about his dead father, he would have said, I dreamt about my dead father. But he didn't say that. He said his father returned in his dreams. And what does that mean? Okay. And so the very subtle, there's a very subtle shift in language when Jung talks about the immediacy of these experiences and how he discerns the difference. He never really came out with a, this is what figures feel like, and this is what the dead feels like. But if you comb the content, you can see subtle differences. Uh, it's ironic, Stephanie, but probably one of the reasons that I'm speaking with you right now and we're having this video conversation for halfway across the world and we'll share it with uh, thousands of New Thinking Aloud viewers is because in 1972, I had a dream in which uh, my great uncle Harry appeared to me. Now, uh, it was such a vivid dream that I remember it to this day. And when I woke up from that dream, I was singing and crying at the mm -hmm. same time. I was singing a, a very sacred Jewish melody called mm -hmm. Avinu Malkeinu. And our Jewish viewers will recognize that right away because it's, it's always sung on just the high holidays. But mm -hmm. the, Point is, I, I wrote home to my parents. I said, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. My mother wrote back immediately. In fact, she called me. She said, mm. uh, how did you know Uncle Harry had just died? Uh, in parapsychology and psychical research, we'd call that a crisis apparition, even though it was in a dream. Uh, mm. But there are many examples of this where people have the experience. They don't even know that the other person is dead. Thank you for sharing that, Jeff. That's a wonderful, wonderful story. And most likely that experience changed you significantly, would, would you say? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's uh, what led me to pursue a career in parapsychology. I began asking, I, I, at the time I was uh, in Berkeley and I was speaking to my professors and asking them, you know, what What do you have to say about this? And I quickly learned that none of them in the psychology department had anything intelligent to say about it <laughs> right. at, at all. And, and I thought, this is so important. I'm going to have to become my own expert. Good. And I'm glad, we are all glad that you did, actually. So thank you for that. You, you have, indeed. Um, I'm Listen, I think there are, uh, and, and as you pointed out, there are many, many examples. Um, uh, Jung's secretary, you know, wrote uh, an ad in the Swiss paper and said, if you've ever had such experiences, please write to us. And she had no idea. She got so many of these accounts and, the, and she published them. Um, and what they were hesitant to do, they as a psychological group were hesitant to um, link the reality of the dead to a, a psychological state, if you will. But what they did do was talk at length about the conditions of the psyche that allow for this type of timeless, spaceless connection of meaning, 
Okay. And of course, Jung would eventually uh, discuss this in terms of synchronicity, right? That this that the psyche aligns in, in some way. And you you've done many, many talks about quantum physics. So I I will not wade into that territory because that is not my wheelhouse. But the but Jung himself said that the closer that we get to um, the self, that's the capital S, that the more likely we are to have these types of connections of meaning. And so if your uncle had passed and was in a state of whatever that is post-mortem, that perhaps aligned not only with your, your meaning making, but your personal unconscious. Okay, it was a significant event which you picked up. And Jung, you know, Memories Dreams is filled with these types of stories. Jung on a train, getting flashes of this type of vision of someone drowning, and he connected it to someone else, and then he goes home, and it was his grandson who almost drowned. So there is this um, this way. Sometimes, you know, they say mothers always know what are going on with their children. Um, they have premonition dreams. Uh, premonition visions, um, when we are tied to other people emotionally, psychologically, and the psyche, we share the psyche, and you can be across the world, you know, as you as you know, and and still be connected. So I don't think that's much of an explanation. But it it is, it does have to do with living closer to the self. I think what we're getting at is that, from the point of view of what is real, what philosophers call ontology. The unconscious is ontologically real. And I, I think people who investigate psychical research and parapsychology, at least half of them come to the conclusion the afterlife is also ontologically real, although maybe not physically real in, in our three-dimensional reality. But somehow these two things, the unconscious and the afterlife, intersect. Absolutely. And in fact, um, Jung equivocates them. He says the unconscious is the land of the dead. Okay. And that is where the land of the dead uh, resides, our ancestors, our cultures, uh, lineage, right? Um, and it's interesting that the Tibetans also, when you talk to them about meditating, and uh, I, I once asked a, a, a Tibetan monk, I said, when you meditate and you you get closer to the bardos with your consciousness, is this the same space as you go when you die in the Tibetan, you know, philosophy? And he said, absolutely. That's, you know, we meditate so that we can understand what's next. Um, in, in a similar way, I guess, to... Um, uh, you know the ancient Greek philosophers who 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 felt that the practice of of philosophy, in a sense, psychology, prepared them for death. Okay, um, to know themselves well enough to become closer to the sense of self that they would know what would be next. But you're quite right. This idea of the unconscious with the idea of the dead. Um, and let's throw in the visioning process. Um, Greg Mogensen in California said that the, you know, the, the visioning faculty itself is about the dead. Okay. And when Jung starts to vision, okay, there's this, this seminal moment in the Red Book. The first part of the Red Book is all chat, chat, chat. It's all dialogue driven, right? There's no description whatsoever. And then he is being called to dive deeper 
and to awaken his dead. And as soon as he's, he's instructed to do that, he, the red book becomes technicolor. All sorts of stuff starts happening. As soon as he wakens the dead, there's color, there's weather, there's time, there's journeying, there's process. It becomes a full-fledged event. So yes, I think um, the unconscious, um, and in terms of the Western canon, the unconscious is this land of the dead, where the dead reside. One of the most mysterious books of uh, the Jungian canon is the Seven Sermons to the Dead, which I gather was also part of the Red Book, but was also privately released by Jung, never really published, but given privately to some close friends and, and associates as early as 1916. As, as I recall, and you have likened it as, as being sort of a Western version of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yes, yes. And, and I think, you know, like with so much in the Red Book, what we had left, we had this bizarre start to uh, the seven sermons, okay, which said the dead have returned from Jerusalem. And so many scholars <laughs> wrote and wrote and wrote about what that could mean. Well, in fact, we just didn't have the first part of that. When they went to Jerusalem to, to discover what they, you know, they were going to Jerusalem to seek something. So so this text is a very, very odd text, but that, that in some ways Jung meant it to be the ending of of the red book of the new the new book and so it's a quirky text um it's uh it was written in a, in a kind of formalized language that was very different so in some respects some of us in um our communities could say that it was channel text um i you know in terms of what we understand channeling to be um that it came from the unconscious and it looks to be scholars before felt that these sermons were really about teaching the dead all the stuff they missed in their living life, right? This is what you missed because you weren't good Christians, or this is what you missed because you didn't understand the depth of Christianity and what it, the point of Christianity was for, right? But when we contextualize seven sermons as a part of the Red Book, we see that the teachings are really to prepare the dead for their new existence in the unconscious. You know, what, what, how can they derive meaning when they are in a boundaryless place, right, as a sea of unconsciousness? And so if you go back into the sermons and have a look at the sequence of them, it appears to be that both Jung in his physical body and this the guide Philemon, Okay, which could be, you know, an animus type figure, um, uh, an old man type figure. The two of them are anchoring this teaching for this deceased group and helping them prepare in meaning to live a life in the unconscious. That is my spin on it. Okay, there are Jungians who would disagree and people who've written differently. But that is that is where I landed with that. In, in other words, the, the suggestion is that the dead appeared in Jung's visions because you might say they were there for therapy. 
<laughs> yes, yes, I love that, Jeff. I love that. Um, absolutely. And of course, Jung is playing off of this, and Shamdasani has mentioned this. Jung is playing off on this uh, very popular notion at the time. Let's not b- forget the rise of spiritualism during this time, and that seances were really about posing questions to the dead and having the dead be guides. Well, Jung is now playing with this reverse where he he, because he's embodied, is now of service to his dead. And he makes mention in, in almost grave terms in uh, the, the Nox Secunda commentary part of the Red Book, that his obligation, that he has an obligation to inform his dead and to keep teaching his dead. And that, and, and, and in a sense, what comes for full circle in the seven sermons is that by doing this, we prepare for our own passing, right? That Jung was able to, uh, by serving his dead, he in a sense has reconciled his own death. It's quite interesting. Jung, as I understand from your book, kept referring to the dead as souls without a body. And we are, you might say, souls with a body. Uh, there, there's quite a distinction. And to learn how to function without a body must take some doing. Yes. And, and so let me, let me just raise this one point that you've brought up, um, is that there's this exchange with Jung um, at the beginning of the sermons that we now have in the Red Book, where he hears the dead running through the kitchen. Okay, in his active imagination. And so he says, wait, 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 where where are all of you going? And one of them turns around and says, we're going to Jerusalem. And he says, can I go with you? And this character says, you cannot go. You have a body. We are dead. So that distinction uh, that dualistic distinction seems to be embedded in the act of imagination, whereby this figure, Ezekiel, says to Jung, you can't go because you're alive, you have the body. And so my, my point that I was trying to make is that this was such a defining moment for Jung, is that perhaps the lack of a physical body was the discerning quality and assisted him in recognizing the dead in unconscious spaces. So as as he moves on in the material, I contextualize that, oh, when he says the dead, he's actually learning from this encounter with Ezekiel about not having a body. But it's tricky. It's tricky. Well, it, it seems as if what we have going here is a dialogue where Jung is teaching them something, but he's also learning something from them. So this conversation with the dead and with these figures of the unconscious um, allowed him to move some of this unconscious content through him um, in order to help him make meaning. Now, you know, some people could say this was just a, you know, a long, long diatribe for, for Jung. But the point is Jung felt better after these encounters, he was starting to feel better about his life, about himself, about um, who he was at that moment. And that was the point that through this, through these encounters with the unconscious and this long conversation 
he began to feel more himself and was able to emerge with such an incredibly deep understanding of his lived experience of, of personal unconscious, collective unconscious, and the personality that he later emerged uh, out of this moment with. I gather that when at the time he started to write the Red Book, it was a, a low point in his life. He was going through several simultaneous crises, uh, personal and in his relationship with Freud. He had just, in effect, ended one of the major intellectual relationships of his entire career. And out of the encounter with the unconscious that uh, in the Red Book itself came uh, really the, the seeds of a psychological system that unfolded in 20 volumes or more. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and thank you for raising that point um, that this emerged at, at a perfect storm. Okay, keep in mind, too, in, in addition to this dissolution with Freud, which was deeply disappointing um, and traumatic for both of them, this was a personal and a professional uh, relationship that they had nurtured um, and valued both of them. Jung was having an affair that became very, very problematic in, in both cities, okay, Zurich and Vienna, um, and became problematic with his wife and uh, other people in his circle. Um, he also, uh, that is when his vision started coming quite distinctly. Um, the break with Freud happened in September uh, 1913. Uh, in October of 1913, a month later, he had a series of visions where he saw Europe flooded um, and, and in blood. Um, and then, of course, he he descended into this this really rigorous series of visions almost every night from mid-November until April almost every night, which he recounted um, as succinctly as he could. Um, and then, of course, at the end of July was the beginning of World War One, And so he looked back and, and was so relieved that the visions that he had the preceding October were actually having to do with the war. Now, that sounds really kind of macabre because who who is celebrating a world war? But suddenly he realized that there was a reason and a cause for those visions. And so if you can imagine this personal um, upheaval set alongside a global upheaval, a social upheaval, he was really having a moment. Right. And so this was a process of him uh, allowing himself to experience something that relieved the psychic tension, the conscious tension that he was really in conflict with. And you are totally right. He emerges out of this this six months, five and a half months, and he works on it for a few more years, never really finishes. The Red Book ends kind of in medias res. And that becomes the entire material for his 20 volumes. You're totally right. Um, and he uses those um, uh, conceptual uh, ideas about the personality um, with the archetypes all emerging from those moments, that incredible upheaval. That's right. Now, I have an interest in, as a parapsychologist, in sort of mapping out the afterlife. And 
From reading your book and engaging in this conversation with you, it becomes quite clear that in order to understand the afterlife, we also have to understand ourselves, our own unconscious processes. And Jung uh, has really uh, mapped that out probably in more detail and specificity than probably anybody else uh, in the history of man humankind. Well, I mean, certainly in terms of the psychological engagement that such um, such a difficult time and such visions, absolutely. And one of the points that I try and make is that, you know, his point was that the dead appear because they actually, their lives did not fulfill uh, some of their purpose, that they left questions unanswered. And he felt that these questions are ours to pick up, that the work with the dead is for the living to do. And so one of those questions that I suggest is that, um, that was left unanswered is, what do you do about the dead in a psychological dynamic? What do you do about us? And part of his exploration eventually, I feel, carries him to some very significant answers about the dead and what he does for them. So, yes, I think you're right. Stephanie, a perfect note to end on because I'm very happy to uh, let our viewers know that you and I intend to have future conversations. This has been a very rewarding discussion, but I know we've just scratched the surface of a very, very rich and, and complex story. So I want to thank you very much for being with me today, and I certainly look forward to future conversations. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff, and I too have really, really enjoyed engaging because we always learn something from these conversations, don't we? Yeah, yeah. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.